As we come today to our text, we are back in 2 Thessalonians, and we are drawing very near the conclusion of the letter, and we are, uh, I hope, excited by that. We'll be to the Easter season soon, and then we will begin Hebrews, which I'm looking forward to. Hope you are as well. As we come back to the text today, uh, we looked at uh, several things last week around the subject of church discipline and how it plays into the story of what uh, Paul is dealing with here in Thessalonica. Paul has dealt with these believers and, and complimented them on a myriad of uh, topics and, and for a myriad of reasons. He said that they are incredibly faithful. They are steadfast in their faith. They are a people who are desiring to bring honor to Christ. And we see all these things in the text, but that doesn't mean that there's not a matter that Paul wants them to address. Paul recognizes that there is a problem in Thessalonica that needs to be addressed within the church, and Paul says the right way of doing it is through the process of church discipline. Paul makes that clear right here in this text we just read, that if these believers or these people who are amongst the fellowship will not do what is right after repeatedly being warned, then the church is to handle it. And in fact, what is said here is that you are to not associate with them anymore. And so we spoke about that last week as a general topic on what church discipline is, how Paul didn't make this up or grab it out of thin air, how he was really relying on what the Lord teaches, that the Lord says there is a proper way to handle problems within the church and that uh, you're to go individually and, in, uh, and, and try to resolve it. If that doesn't work, take some witnesses with you. If that doesn't work, then the whole church deals with it. And that's what Paul is dealing with here. Paul says, I addressed this in person with you. says that in the text. He says, you know, I dealt with it in the first letter because it's there. We'll see it again today. And then Paul says, now I'm dealing with it a little more firmly. If this won't be straightened out, then it's up to the fellowship at Thessalonica to deal with it authoritatively and uh, make the message clear uh, to these uh, disruptors, if you will, of the church. Now, what's interesting is... Um, Paul says this warning has come from us. We dealt with this when we were with you. The us is the Apostle Paul, Silas and Timothy, and they still wouldn't listen. I mean, the Apostle Paul is saying something, and you're going, yeah, eh, we'll just do what we want to do. Paul says enough is enough. And I think as we walk through this, we'll see in the first letter, he deals with it very gently very lovingly trying to just shepherd them to do the right thing, and they still do not. Now Paul brings his hammer. Uh, he says it's time to, to deal with this forcefully. So uh, we've seen this now, and we come to today's text where Paul deals with these disruptors. Now, this is a difficult thing to grasp what the fullness of what Paul is dealing with is. We have some details here, but almost all the constructions that people have come up with to explain what is happening here fail to deal with all of the evidence. And so we have to realize we can't fully figure out exactly what the situation is, but we can understand large parts of it, and we can, more importantly, see why Paul felt it needed to be dealt with and how he says to deal with it. So, having said all of that, let's look one more time at the Word of God in relationship to this text. Beginning at verse 1 this time. Finally, brethren, pray for us that the word of the Lord may run swiftly and be glorified just as it is with you, and that we may be delivered from unreasonable and wicked men, for not all have faith. But the Lord is faithful, who will establish you and guard you from the evil one. And we have confidence in the Lord concerning you, both that you do and will do the things we command you. 
Now may the Lord direct your hearts into the love of God and into the patience of Christ. But we command you, brethren, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you withdraw from every brother who walks disorderly and not according to the tradition which he received from us. For you yourselves know how you ought to follow us, for we were not disorderly among you. Nor did we eat anyone's bread free of charge, but worked with labor and toil night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you, not because we do not have authority, but to make ourselves an example of how you ought to follow us. For even when we were with you, we commanded you this, if anyone will not work, neither shall he eat. For we hear that there are some who walk among you in a disorderly manner, not working at all, but are busybodies. Now those who are such we command and exhort through our Lord Jesus Christ that they work in quietness and eat their own bread. But as for you, brethren, do not grow weary in doing good. And if anyone does not obey our word in this epistle, note that person and do not keep company with him that he may be ashamed. Yet do not count him as an enemy, but admonish him as a brother. Now that's a long text and it deals with a lot. We looked at a lot of it last week. I want to remind us of one key point. Paul is making the point here that the purpose of this process, if it is forced to be gone through, is reconciliation. The point is that even if you must mark that person, note that person, and not keep company with that person, it's for the purpose that they would become ashamed of their sin, repent of it, and be reconciled. That's why you don't count them as an enemy but you're admonishing them the way you would a brother. You're seeking reconciliation. So that is very important. As we look at this text, I want us to look at two points. This is really going to be the closest I've ever preached to a one-point sermon. The second point will be our closing. The first point uh, has got a lot in it, so let's get to it. The first point will be what Paul is addressing. The second point, what Paul is defending. So beginning with this idea of what Paul is addressing as we uh, start this morning, we need to realize that the Thessalonians who received this letter from Paul knew more about what was going on than we do. That's just the way it works. We don't know all the details. We don't know the people involved. We don't know the situation. People have, uh, this is scholars and preachers, have tried to reconstruct the situation, have come up with many uh, arguments for what they believe was going on in Thessalonica, how to explain this problem that Paul is dealing with. All of them, as far as I can tell, fall short of dealing with all the evidence Paul gives. And uh, we'll look at that at the end. But I don't think it matters. If it mattered, we would have the fullness of the details. What Paul is teaching us and the Holy Spirit is teaching us through this writing is uh, that there is a problem in the church and there's a right way to deal with it. And there are principles here for how we are to live our lives. Now, if you look at it, uh, we want to look back at the fullness of what Paul has said on the matter. And that will take us back to 1 Thessalonians. If you would, turn back to 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. Now, if you remember, we had a sermon going through 1 Thessalonians. This was a long time ago called Paul's Apologia. And that's Paul's apology or his defense. And we argued that chapter 2 is largely Paul defending his ministry and his motives. He's saying we didn't come to seek glory for ourselves, money for ourselves. We didn't come to enrich ourselves or to lift high ourselves. We came to enrich the fellowship of the believers meaning spiritually, and to lift high the name of Jesus Christ. Now, why is this of great importance? Because Paul was trying to say at the time in 1 Thessalonians, 
he was saying, uh, you know, there are many um, people who come through charlatans, religious charlatans who are peddling something. We wanted you to know that we weren't. Though we could have expected profit from our preachings, no, instead, we toiled day and night, labored and toiled day and night. Now, what does Paul mean by that? I think what he means is we worked during the day and we preached at night. I think that's what he meant. We labored and toiled, but it's important because this wording in the Greek means physical labor. Paul's like, we were doing hard physical labor when we came to you. Why? That we might not be a burden to any of you. Now, why is that important in what Paul is saying? And this, by the way, is in uh, verses 9 through 12. Let's read it here. For you, brethren, for you remember, brethren, our labor and toil, for laboring night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you, we preach to you the gospel of God. You were witnesses, and God also. How devoutly and justly and blamelessly we behaved ourselves among you who believe. As you know, how we exhorted and comforted and charged every one of you as a father does his own children, that you would walk worthy of God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. My friends, what Paul says is, I didn't come to you as someone looking to benefit off your behalf, on, on, from you, I should say, but I came as someone wanting to help you, to, to bring you a message, to bring you hope, to bring the message of the gospel to you that you might be saved and enter the kingdom and glory of Jesus Christ. Now, as you look at that, Paul says, you know this because there was no profit motive for me. I didn't come saying, well, I'll give you this message, but first, here's what you do for me. Paul didn't say, first, give me money, give me a, a place to stay, give me food to eat. He says, I'll preach the gospel to you, I'll provide those things for myself. Now, why did Paul do this? Well, Paul tells us here, he didn't want to be a burden. He wanted to make sure that no one mis mistook his motives. He came not as a charlatan trying to become rich. He came as a person bringing the truth. And they needed to hear the truth of the message of Christ, the gospel of Jesus Christ, what he calls here the gospel of God. He later calls our gospel the message that we live by and that we proclaim and share and have life in. Paul says, I came to bring you that message. That was my motive. I didn't want anyone to be able to make an accusation that there was another motive in what I did. That's really the nature of the entire second chapter of what Paul is arguing here. It's an apology, a defense of his ministry, his motives. He says, I am telling you, I came for your good, not my own. Now, Paul's good is included. He's a minister of the gospel. He needs to preach the gospel. Woe is me if I do not preach the gospel. But Paul says, my motive was to bring the gospel to you. I did it out of, a, out of a concern for your welfare, not my own. Now, what we see here is Paul says, I did not want to rely on the charity of the church for sustenance, but I engaged in very taxing labor and toil. Labor and toil, day and night, that I might not become a burden to you. Now, uh, there's much we could say about this. This may have even caused a stir in Thessalonica that some people said, why is Paul rejecting our charity? But Paul's telling them, the reason I rejected it was not that I did not think as an apostle that I was worthy of it, but that I did not want to be a burden to any of you. He'll make it clear in today's writing that he had authority and right to take such sustenance from the church. He chose not to. He chose not to. Now, none of that is really dealing with what Paul's dealing with in today's text. 
But Paul will use this again today and what we read today to say, listen, not only did we not want to be a burden to you, but we set an example for you, an example for you to follow. If Paul, the apostle to the Gentiles, came to a Gentile area and did not expect money, gave up that right, gave up that authority in a sense to receive it for their good and to set an example, then who are these others that are demanding the church take care of them? That's Paul's question. Who are they that they are demanding? And that does seem to be what's happening. They're demanding, you owe this to us. Now, we're going to be careful here because we need to be careful at what is being said and what is not being said. We'll come back to that. But notice the approach is gentle. Paul compliments the church uh, in many ways. But he says here, as we're talking about what we did, remember that we came in selflessness, not selfishness. If you go to chapter 4, which in my Bible is just across the page, and we're going to be looking at the same verses, by the way, 9 through 12 of chapter 4. Look at what Paul says. But concerning brotherly love, you have no need that I should write to you, for you yourselves are taught by God to love one another. And indeed, you do so toward all the brethren who are in Macedonia. But we urge you, brethren, that you increase more and more, that you also aspire to lead a quiet life, to mind your own business, and to work with your own hands as we commanded you, and that you walk properly toward those who are outside, that you may lack nothing. Now, my friends, there is much said here. Paul says, I'm writing you, I'm discussing brotherly love here, but you don't really need for me to. Why? Because you are showing brotherly love in your daily walk within the church. This is not taught to you by any man, he says, but this is the result of the Holy Spirit who pours out the love of God in your heart uh, when the Holy Spirit is given to us. So Paul says you have brotherly love. It's evident not only to the people within your congregation, but to all the Christians of Macedonia. You are showing brotherly love, and yet I would encourage you to increase more and more. And we might think, well, in what way could they increase more and more? Well, of course, we're always being increasingly sanctified by the power of the Spirit, but I think Paul is giving hints that he's not meaning that this is necessarily every individual that he's targeting here, but there are some in the church that have leaps and bounds to go in their brotherly love. And if you want to see that, look at what Paul says here. As you read this text, he says that you may aspire to lead a quiet life. In other words, the way the brotherly love will work itself out in this instance is that you will lead a quiet life, a peaceful life. Well, did you notice in the text today that he says these people should work in peace or in quietness? Interesting connection there. And to mind your own business? What is the accusation in today's text? That they are not busy but are busy bodies. Not minding their own business, but everybody else's. And so again, you see that Paul is gently here directing this charge to the very people we're dealing with today. Paul is saying, if you want to live in brotherly love, the way the congregation can increase that is that there are some among you who need to learn to lead quiet lives, peaceful lives, to mind their own business and to what? Work with their own hands. What do we find in today's text? a command to work with your own hands in peace and to mind your own business. So Paul's dealing with the exact same thing here. And he says that if you do this, you will walk properly toward those outside the fellowship 
and you will be lacking in nothing. Now, there are many clues here that are difficult. What does Paul mean when he says you will walk properly toward those outside or in regard to those outside? I think it's led some people to make an assumption that I don't think works. We'll look at that a little bit later. There's so much to deal with here. I apologize as we go through this text. I thought about dividing this up into a couple of weeks. Here's the problem with that. It's hard to do that because if you start dealing with the issue and then you resolve the issue, then you come back and you're dealing with different parts of the issue and resolving it the same way. And so it's kind of like, well, it's basically the same message. Or you present the problem and you say, and next week we'll find out the solution. But uh, Martin Lloyd-Jones said a preacher should never preach that way. And um, the reason that he believed that was he preached a message one Sunday morning in which he presented the problem of sin. And I know this isn't the salvific issue here directly. But, Paul, but uh, Martin Lloyd-Jones preached on sin. He said, tonight we'll conclude the message with the solution. And that day during World War II, bombings took place all over London and many of his congregants died. And he said he was haunted by the fact, even recognizing the providence of God, that some of those church members did not hear the solution to the problem of sin. And he said, I'll never leave a hanging sermon again. So that's on my mind when we deal with things like that. So as we come to the text, trying to deal with it here and all that's said, we need to recognize that Paul is dealing with this problem. But notice again, I ask you to notice, I beg you to notice that Paul is dealing with it gently. Here's my urging. Here's my request. Here's my hope that you will choose to do this, that you will live quiet lives, that you will work, that you will mind your own business, that you will be what God has called you to be, a people who come into the fellowship of Christ as people not looking uh, to be taken care of, but looking for how you can serve. Paul says that's what we're looking for here. Now, as we continue... I want you to turn here to uh, chapter 5. And as we approach the end here, we would recognize that there's something else that Paul says uh, in in all of this uh, text. He says in verse 12, And we urge you, brethren, now he's dealt with some eschatology in between, but we urge you, brethren, to recognize those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you and to esteem them very highly in love for their work's sake. Now stop there for a second. If you've been reading this letter, why does Paul say that? This seems to be a church that is on fire for Christ, doing the right things. They're organized. They're evangelizing. They're moving the gospel not only within their own city, but all over Macedonia. They are preaching the gospel. Paul says it's as if... There's no work left for us to do as the missionary team. So why is there this urge to recognize those that labor among you? I think Paul is hinting there's a bit of friction within the church at Thessalonica. And notice what the solution is again and how it ties into what we're talking about. Be at peace among yourselves. Paul senses that there's something going on in the church that has left them in less than a state of shalom. Peace, wholeness, well-being. There's something going on in the church that is robbing the church of the peace that he believes it should have in Christ Jesus. And look at the very next thing he says. Now we exhort you, brethren, warn those who are unruly. Warn those who are unruly. Some say warn those who are idle, some of the translations. This is, there's a tough word here in the Greek, ataktos. 
and it means disorderly. That's what it literally means. It's translated in this passage, in these passages, often to be idle. Uh, it's one of the only places in the Greek it would be translated that way. If it is, it may be right, but it definitely means disorderly. It means those who ignore their proper post in a military uh, situation, those who are out of the chain of command. They've fallen out of the chain of command, no longer do what they are placed to do. My belief is, and we're all just kind of reading and trying to figure out that the real problem of what's going on in Thessalonica rests here. There are some people who are moving outside the order of what goes on in the church and are trying to elevate themselves up to a level near the elders of the church. They're saying we deserve to be taken care of. We're involved in all of your lives teaching you and, 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 and helping you and, and injecting ourselves and we deserve also to be taken care of. Now, it doesn't say that directly. But I stand on good ground, I think, with uh, many of the reformers who also saw some ministerial angle in what's going on here. Some ministerial angle. But anyway, I digress. We'll move on. We come to today's text. Let's look at it again. And I want you to notice that Paul dealt with this sparingly in a sense. A couple of different places in the first letter. He touched on it and retouched on it and emphasized it all lovingly, all mildly, I think, to some degree except for the charge to admonish. And now we come to today's text, and there is a command, an apostolic command. And we looked at this last week. A command not just in the authority of Paul, but in the very name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you would draw from every brother who walks disorderly and not according to the tradition which he received from us. In other words, again, this word of disorder, atoktos, disorderly. For you yourselves know how you ought to follow us, for we were not disorderly among you. We didn't just teach you when we were with you. And notice Paul says, when I was in person with you for that short time, two or three weeks, I directly instructed you on this matter. Directly instructed you on this matter. Those who are guilty of this heard it directly from us. They received this tradition, he says, from us. When we were with you, we directly taught you these things. We didn't just teach it to you, Paul says. We modeled it for you. Though we had every right to expect to be taken care of, we gave that up. Why? As an example for you to follow. An example for you to follow. We were not disorderly among you. We didn't eat anyone's bread free of charge, but we worked with our own labor and toil both night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you. Almost the exact same wording from the first letter. And Paul says, why did we do that? Paul says, not because we didn't have the authority. He wants to make that very clear. Not because he couldn't have expected it, but we wanted to make ourselves an example of how you should follow us. Now, it's interesting. In the first letter, Paul gives a slightly different reasoning, doesn't he? We didn't want to be a burden. But Paul now looks back on that experience that the Lord led him to do, I believe. He just knew in the Spirit work and and toil do what needs to be done don't be a burden to any of them that they may not think that your ministry is fraudulent but now paul looks back and says and not only that it was also an example to you of how you are to live look at it again because paul will now come to this command for even when we were with you we commanded you in this way paul says if one is not willing to work neither shall he eat. 
a lot of people take that phrase and they say, well, everything Paul's dealing with is just people who are not willing to work. I think there's some problems with that argument, um, but for sure it's a part of the problem, isn't it? There's a group of people who do not feel that they should provide for their own needs. They feel that their brothers and sisters should all provide for their own needs. Paul says it's, it's like this. If one is able to work and is unwilling to work, Paul says to the church, stop taking care of them. Stop feeding them. If they are able to work but simply will not work, Paul says, I'm commanding you in this, commanding you in this, stop feeding them. Now this immediately tells us something. These are not people who are providentially hindered from working. These are not people uh, that are unable to work. These are people who are fully able to work, who Paul says will not work, though they've been asked to, commanded to, begged to, whatever you want to say, they will not do it. Paul says, stop feeding them. And then listen to this. For we hear that there are some who walk among you. So not one, not two, some. There's a group uh, who are walking. Now this is a word for manner of life. We've talked about this many times in Paul's writings. Manner of life. They are living their lives in such a way that they are disorderly. Disorderly. They are harming the order of the church. That's what Paul's saying. Their way of living is harming the order, the good order that God has devised for His church. They're not working, but are busybodies. Now I want you to listen to this because we've talked about this before. Translation is such a delicate task. Paul does a brilliant wordplay in the Greek here. A brilliant wordplay in which he plays the word for labor and the word for meddling. That's the two words he uses. They have a very similar root. In fact, the, the second word only adds peri to the front of it. And so you would immediately hear these words back to back and recognize these are basically the same word with just a different prefix. A prefix. So it makes it hard for us to translate this because obviously work and meddling don't do that. Labor and meddling don't do that. But some translators have tried to come as close as they can by using busy and busybody as these words. And if you think about it, that's what he's ultimately getting at here. He says that uh, you're not willing to work, but you are willing to meddle. But in the Greek, it would have had a little bit more of an impact. And if you think about it here, he says, uh, you're not willing to ergozimai, but you're willing to peri ergozimai. Okay, and these words are, again, labor and metal. All right? Probably the closest we could uh, have in English, if you could really phrase it and didn't worry about word-for-word translation, and I always say, be very concerned for word-for-word translation. But... Anyway, the the closest you're probably going to get is your body is never busy, but you're always a busy body. It'd be something like that very clear wordplay that you would hear and recognize and would get your attention. So Paul is basically saying, don't miss what I'm saying here. There are some people among you who are never busy, but are always busy bodies. And Paul says, you've got to take action. If they will not stop this, you've got to take action. I don't think it's the charity that so much bothers Paul. Paul wants people to be charitable. It's the needlessness of the charity in this case that's being expected and the division that it's causing within the body of Christ. Paul says, we can't have this. We can't have it. Now, that's a lot of detail, I know. And you've got to take all those puzzle pieces and put it together and construct what you think is going on exactly. But what do we know? We know those basic facts. 
There's people who don't want to work. They're expecting the church to take care of them. Uh, they're causing problems within the rank of the church. They're causing disharmony. There's a lack of shalom now in the church. There's no peace or, or wholeness to the community. There's division. The leadership somehow has been drawn into this where there are some people who probably aren't honoring the elders. Maybe they're siding more with this group that's expecting to be taken care of. They're busybodies injecting themselves in all sorts of situations that Paul says they have no business being involved in. Paul says it would be better for them to mind their own business, earn their own living, and quit being a problem in the church. Now, that's a lot. But Paul's answer here is all about what? Be a contributor. And I don't just mean financially. Be an asset to your church. Find a way to serve the church. You know, we have a famous political saying here in America, ask not what your country can do for you, but what you can do for your country. I think Paul's saying, ask not what your church can constantly do for you, but what you can do for the church of Jesus Christ. What can you do to help the ministry of the gospel? Now, many of the reconstructions, and I want to point this out, I think don't quite live up to the details. Why? Is this a refusal to work in light of eschatological realizations? Many people think that. They think, oh, it's because they think Christ is returning. People said, I'm not willing to work anymore. If he's coming tomorrow, why go to work? But that doesn't explain why Paul says, when I first came there, I was dealing with this issue. In other words, this is an issue that existed when I arrived in Thessalonica. There had been no eschatology taught at that point. And it's a, it's a, we won't get into the Greek structure, but he's saying this is a problem that I had been having to deal with from the beginning. So again, I don't think it's in light of eschatology that Paul says, you think Christ is coming back and so you won't work. That doesn't seem to be it. Some scholars think it's Greek patronage, that there are these wealthy people outside the church that are funding them. And that's why Paul says in 1 Thessalonians, be sure that you uh, take care of this so that you're walking rightly to those outside the church. The problem is Paul tells the church, quit feeding them, not out those outside the church. He says, you and the church who are under my command should do what's right. If they will not work, stop feeding them. It'll clear it up real quick. When they get hungry, they'll go to work. Clearly what Paul is saying. But these are not strictly lazy people because Paul's chief concern is the proper order within the church. He's dealt with this many times. And atoktos literally means that, proper chain of command. There's something bigger going on here. We just don't know what it is. Not, not in depth anyway. So that brings me to the way I want to close with our second point, and this is the closing. What is Paul defending? Well, we want to be careful what we take from this. We don't want to take from this the idea that Christians are not to be a charitable, charitable people, are we? There are many people who can't work. There are many people within the fellowship of believers that might lose their job, might not be able to find a job, might fall on hard times, medical issues, whatever it may be. God calls us to be a people who love, support, and take care of our brothers and sisters. So it's not talking about that. Paul's talking about people who have every ability to do what he's asking but just refuse to do it. So we want to make that clear. We're kind of walking that tightrope, right? You don't want to fall off either side. But at the same time, Paul says... If what you're dealing with is the case, then you have an obligation to be firm in this. To be firm in this. Now, we can be left as a church that isn't really dealing with an issue like this to ask, well, what can we learn from this? What can we learn from this? And it isn't always easy. If you make it simply about those who will not work, let them not eat, we go, well, we just wasted a Sunday, didn't we? But I don't think we did. Because Paul is telling us, in fact, I should say I know we didn't because we're reading the Word of God, um, but... 
I think what Paul is saying is be concerned for the welfare of your church. Be concerned for the health of your church. Be concerned that the right things are going on, that there is proper order, proper, I believe, church governance. I think that's why Paul brings the elders into it in the the first letter. Make sure there is a proper chain of command. And make sure that you are in that chain of command. For what purpose? That Christ would be honored. That's what Paul's saying. That the gospel goes out unhindered. Unhindered. My friends, Paul had just asked them to pray that the gospel would fly, didn't he? That it would run with speed. What slows down the gospel going out quicker than a church infighting? Divisions, problems within a church. It's the quickest thing to trip you out right out the gate. Right out the gate. And what I believe Paul is saying here is, get your act together because God has called you to a great task. Don't be putting up with this problem that's going to emerge and get worse and worse and worse until you're infighting instead of outward looking. Paul says, deal with it now. Deal with it now. As I said, we're not in this situation, so what do we do? I think we are always on guard for those things that can become issues. We always got to be looking for them. We always got to be asking ourselves, what am I doing? And I think there's a general question here that we ought to ask ourselves, which is, what is our relationship to the church? Is it always a taking relationship? Or are we looking for ways that we can give back? It's interesting that Paul's argument basically here is, and we dealt with this in 1 Thessalonians when we went through, we had a sermon on this, that brotherly love means that our ultimate goal is the good of others. Others. Isn't it interesting that when Paul deals in Corinth with spiritual gifts, he said, you've got it all wrong. Why? You're wondering what you can get out of your spiritual gifts. You're arguing over who's got the greatest spiritual gift. Paul says this is nonsense. Like you're going to rank each other on your giftedness? Paul says, what nonsense, what a waste of time. Paul doesn't deny that some gifts are greater than others. He just says, why are you arguing about this? Why are you doing this? He said, do you not know that your gifts have been given to you by God for the benefit of others, not for your own benefit? Given to each, Paul says, for what? The benefit of all. Each of us are given gifts by God. And God calls us to find a way to use those gifts that we've been given for the good of the church, His church. So that's what He desires of us. And I think what Paul is really saying here is, if you want to take what he wrote in uh, Corinthians, 1 Corinthians, and just apply it here, Paul says, again, you've got it backwards. You're coming to the church asking how it can make your life better, your life easier. Now, the gospel certainly gives us hope. I don't want to say it doesn't, but what I'm saying is, Paul says when you come to the church, it's a service relationship. You're serving your Lord and Master Jesus Christ. Don't elevate yourself to be served. Look how you can serve Christ. My friends, I think what Paul would say to us in this text, if this isn't your problem, be thankful. But we all need to be asking ourselves, what is our relationship to the church? Are we here to be served or are we here to serve? My friends, a truly great church is a church in which everyone is in unison on mission, wanting the gospel proclaimed and working together for the good of the entire body of believers that Christ might be glorified. Jesus said, they'll know that you are my disciples when they see what? That you love one another as I have loved you. How do we love one another? We sacrifice for one another. We promote one another. We help one another. 
we don't go around constantly with our hands out. That can be financially or whatever other way. But we look at how can I contribute to the work of the Lord in this place.